welcome in listeners to a very exciting episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have a full jam-packed panel for you today um, discussing an incredibly new, important, exciting series that's taking place here in New York. Uh, Today joining us, we have Jorge Ignacio Cortinas, who is the playwright of Recent Alien Abductions, Christina Anderson, who is the playwright of Three Plays, and Sheila Callahan and Sarah Rule, who are the co-founders of the Sledgehammer series. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, which is the Sledgehammer series um, that starts on Sunday, September 25th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Drama Bookshop. Um, And this is an incredible series. So panelists, everyone, welcome, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. So happy to have you with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Likewise. Yeah, thank you. This is incredible to just have the array of talent and intelligence and just everything here here with us today. I mean, learning about this series that's happening, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Um, Why don't we start with um, Sarah? Will you tell us a little bit about the series? Sure. It really started with Sheila. Um, It was Sheila's brainchild to create a kind of publishing company during COVID, um, partly first to raise money, right, Sheila, for artists. That was the first book she did. And then she and I were um, talking about ideas of another series she could do. And I was thinking about all of my favorite playwrights who didn't have a published anthology yet. Um, and thinking also about how the gatekeepers um, of the publishing world, particularly in dramatic publishing, sometimes takes so long to um, to publish a brilliant playwright's work, even if their plays are being produced across the country, which is true of these four writers who are in the first series. Um, um, Sheila and I also noticed that the gatekeepers were... Um, publishing a preponderance of white playwrights. Um, And we were interested in broadening dramatic publishing and also taking a more artist-centered approach, um, which I guess you could also say is a little bit of a a DIY approach um, as we're figuring it out. But it's it's really been a fascinating um, collective journey to talk with other brilliant colleagues and writers I respect about things like what would you want on your back cover copy? What would you actually want a cover to look like? Would you want to launch on the same day as your colleagues or would you want to launch individually? All these um, conversations about kind of plays as as literature, plays as text that I feel like the artists themselves sometimes aren't aren't engaged in. But I guess I would I would say just I would end by saying these are some of my favorite four writers in the country and I, I teach their plays often um, and it's been annoying to me um, that some of some of the work isn't in print yet or that I've had to circulate it in manuscript form so I'm just delighted about having the books in my hands soon and be able to both um, treasure them myself but but give these books to other readers so I think we'll treasure them. Sheila, anything that you want to add with that? Well, I just yesterday, I, I we we haven't told Christina this yet, but so uh, I'm working uh, on a play at Yale Rep, and they're teaching a class, um, and some of Christina's plays are in it, but they solidified the syllabus um, 
because of this collection. Oh, nice. <laughs> They're doing all class on Christine, but because of the collection. But she called me to ask me if if they were going to be books for sale at the bookstore so that she could bring some back to Yale. So this is just to underline or underscore Sarah's point is that like the, the book is not even in the on the planet right now in 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 viable form it's about to be and and i have people reaching out to me for it so it does feel like there is a void that's being filled and i i hope that i hope that 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 phenomenon happens with all of our writers i i'm, I'm sure it will but like but it seemed suddenly it seemed like duh why why has nobody done it before but i think that that's kind of why 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 i was interested in doing this during the pandemic it was just sort of heartbreaking how not only how there were you know there was no theater to to make but also there was there felt like a void of community and i don't know if people knew how to reach out to each other i also know that theaters were n nervous about dying and uh that that became primary and artists were left uh, and that's not anybody's fault that's just but how, like it's a crisis and we're still in a crisis. And so it felt like finding an alternative way to let people know that it, worth is still value, work is still valuable even if it's not finding its way on stages that are financially troubled right now. I, that felt like an important gesture. Now I wanna bring in our two playwrights uh, with us who, whose work is being featured uh, next week. Um, and I want to start with Christina, your work, Three Plays, what, can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm a library nerd. Um, like, from the moment I entered undergrad, I was spending a lot of time in the shelves, uh, particularly in the drama section, and then also in the Black history section. Um, and I was the one who would be crawling on the floor, like, finding those books um, that hadn't been checked out in, like, 15 years. Uh, and, and that's how I found a lot of the playwrights that um, that I had loved was just kind of finding these published works uh, and reading these plays and plays that I probably wouldn't see a production of um, or plays I wouldn't have found otherwise. Um, so so, you know, in in thinking about how I wanted my collection to exist, um, you know, I really wanted to speak on the record with this book. Uh, and to really kind of consider it a documentation of my work as an artist in the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, 15, 30 years from now, when that freshman like me is crawling, in, you know, in the, uh, uh, along the shelves at the library, they'll like find this collection. So, you know, I really considered it um, just an opportunity to get to know my work uh, and particularly my body of work. I chose three plays that I would often get the most emails, like text calls about to get a copy of, and like Sarah mentioned, to teach, or people who had seen a production of my play and wanted a copy, uh, like on their bookshelf. Um, so I have three plays, Hollow Roots, Good Goods, and How to Catch Creation. Um, and I also included an element of style intro essay that just kind of gives a, an, yeah, an introduction to, um, to how my theatrical worlds work. Um, so, so, you know, in some ways it's an introduction to my work. It's a, a reuniting with my work with people who've seen it in the theater. Um, and it's also an opportunity for students uh, and teachers to, uh, you know, do scene work for directors to stage things, for other playwrights to, um, to you know, read and, you know, hopefully enjoy. 
but that was really kind of my approach when I was putting together my collection. Amazing. And then Jorge, how about you? Uh, your work, uh, recent alien, uh, I'm going to butcher it, uh, recent alien uh, abduction. abductions. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just want to underscore uh, some of the dynamics that Sarah and, and Sheila were talking about. I think one of the problems that off-Broadway writers um, or writers who do a lot of work off-Broadway, because uh, present company includes uh, Broadway writers, um, uh, find is that existing publishing opportunities for playwrights have a set of criteria in place that as far as I can glean uh, are really about uh, a business model based on licensing agreements and making money off uh, plays that are going to be produced on a lot of college campuses and a lot of sort of community-based settings and paraprofessional settings and small theaters. And that's fantastic, but it means that if you're play for whatever reason, maybe the age of the actors, maybe the ethnicity or race of the actors, maybe it's approach to language, maybe it's content, doesn't have what they perceive to be that kind of mass appeal, then it's, it, it's not a good fit for that sort of commercial publishing. That's in no way a reflection on the quality of the work. And I just love this initiative so much uh, and kudos to, to Sheila as the sort of the spiritual godmother and the, the, the real fire behind the, the initiative, because um, it taps into so many of the, not just DIY kind of uh, ethos of, but you know, if you look at punk rock, if you look at the East Village art scene, if you look at all kind, if you look at any kind of progressive initiative that tries to put the means of production in the hands of the people who are actually doing the work, uh, time and again, you see artists uh, and other communities responding to a commercial sector that doesn't meet their needs and building the infrastructure that does. Um, and I'm, I'm just honored to be a part of this cohort with writers that I admire so much and be working with thinkers like Sarah and Sheila, who I have admired for years. Um, and also to be part of a project that puts, it's sort of really has designed itself from the ground up to serve the interests of the artist instead of trying to fit the artist into a pre-existing mode. So I've had plays published uh, with commercial publishers before and everything from the design process to the way it's edited, it's such a struggle because if your play doesn't fit into that kind of cookie cutter logic, uh, it can be really difficult to convince the publishers about why it should be done in maybe a slightly different form. Whereas with Sledgehammer, that logic is inverted. And it's, what do you need? What are you looking for? Let's do that. I love that. And I, you know, I never even thought of or even knew about that whole business model behind the, uh, uh, you know, picking a play, what should be published. Um, I'm someone who just loves to go to something like the drama bookshop or even like the theater circle that's in the theater district or just a random bookshop. And I'll just go randomly buy plays. 
I, it doesn't matter. I, as long as it's not a title that I don't have, I'll just grab a play and then I'll just read it. And, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Why hasn't this been done? Or maybe like, oh, that's why that hasn't been done, you know. But there have been works that I've seen that I'm like, why isn't this getting published? This was such a brilliant work. And I've never put that together about, I guess, its marketability outside of this area that it won't just be published just because it's a great work. I mean, books get published because they're a great work. So why can't plays? I was going uh, to to reiterate what Jorge is saying. Part, part of the reason is that the big productions can guarantee that there are going to be more big productions, which is, is how the bread and butter of theater institutions. So the, the royalties that come from production become the major income of a lot of these publishers. And that, of course, it keeps feeding back on itself. The people who get produced the most are also going to be the ones that get the most books sold and published. But this is still a just so you like to to be clear about what this is. This is um all, it is a commercial enterprise and it is a business, but the structure of the business is meant to put the money back in the pockets of the writers. So the writers get eighty percent of all the profits, and they can also they have feedback on how much the purchase price of the book is, so they know how much the book. Um, is being printed for and how much of the overhead is going to cost and how much they'll get back. Um, it is more labor intensive on the artist sides, which my artists can, these artists here can definitely attest to because when you design your own book, you're actually designing your own book. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than a traditional publisher. But the benefit is, I, I mean, I hope the benefit is that um, it, this won't operate like a charity or a nonprofit. This will operate like an income uh, source for the writers, which also feels like a model that uh, doesn't exist in the world. Partially because, I mean, I'm this is it's a business operating as a nonprofit in a way, with the interest of the 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 people who are creating in mind, not the interest of the people who are um, uh, receiving the money. Because the artists are the people who are receiving the money, not the corporation. So. like developing this project this um I, I this series I guess putting this together well in some ways it was like an organization I was part of back in the day called 13p that, that's how Sheila and I first met I think and that was 13 playwrights who were sick of endless development and wanted to self-produce and so the the playwright whose turn it was was the artistic director and the other playwrights would sort of help as, as they wanted to. What was great about it is it wasn't actually a consensus model. It was each playwright got to do what they want with the, the voluntary support of the others. And that's sort of how we've run it. Um, so that for example, um, I think Hansel at a point said, could somebody go through my plays and look for quotes for the back cover copy? And we each sort of took a play and gave suggestions. Um, and then I like just found out things about the writers that I didn't know before that I was so excited about, like when Christina um, and Philip designed their own covers. Um, I had no idea that they were such 
beautiful visual artist and, and could do that. Um, and then I learned about Hansel that she really wanted to doodle on her plays and she was interested in marginalia. Um, and I learned from my dear friend Jorge, who I've known for a hundred years, that he felt like one thing he didn't like in prior um, publications was that the work wasn't properly introduced in the way that he had chosen for it to be framed. And that was important to him. So really it was um, more than anything, a, a learning process for me, getting to know what it actually involves to make a book um, and how, how different the desires are actually um, from different artists. And Sheila, anything you'd like to add with that? Uh, I, I share um, Sarah's awe and astonishment and respect for the artist. I was gonna use the word bravery. It's, it's not. It's not quite that. It's a vulnerable thing to be known for one thing and then to uh, ask to be seen as another. And I think often it's because a lot of a lot of our business is, is fear-based because there's a scarcity mentality and there's also um, definitely a system at work that isn't necessarily designed to <laughs> provide for most people. I, I, I feel like we wanna make sure we're, there's always a feeling that we wanna get it right, we wanna do it right in order to you know, not get kicked to the side. And it, it does take a certain kind of fortitude, strength, whatever you want to call it, to say, I'm this, I'm also this, I'm also this, I'm also this. And uh, it may not be what you thought and it may not be what you want to think, but it's true. Awesome. Um, Christina, with all of this, um you know, your play with this series, is there a message or a thought that you're hoping audiences will walk away with? Um, yeah, you know, I think a couple of things, like like first and, first and foremost, like with my work, uh, I, I, I have a great deal of intention to celebrate um, live performance and to also celebrate um, imagination uh, and to celebrate uh, uh, seeing oneself in a character uh, and their struggles and their uh, successes um, and, and, and the to be continued in a character. So it's my hope uh, with people reading um, all of these plays is that first of all, you get to know some really fantastic playwrights better like through their work and the ability which is nice with these collections that uh, uh, when you connect with all of our plays or one of our plays, you can pass it on to someone else. Um, because I can't tell you as a teacher how many times I'm sitting in my office, you know, with a student or on Zoom and I can see and hear their voice and I can recommend another playwright that they should read. Um, so, 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 you know, a lot of these plays that uh, myself and my colleagues have written are love letters, you know. Uh, uh, like various forms of love letters to various uh, uh, people um, and memories and dreams and pasts. So uh, it's my hope that people walk away loving theater even more uh, and finding writers that they love even more and uh, uh, Christmas gifts, Hanukkah gifts, <laughs> birthday gifts, you know, <laughs> you know, winter gifts, summer gifts, school gifts, you know. <laughs> 
uh, just keep like passing it on um, and, and, and sharing the work. Because uh, live performance is obviously a big pillar of what we all do, but I think um, uh, all of us uh, really uh, consider how we lay these plays on the page. And I think that's also a way to consume the work and to get a better understanding of who we all are as artists. Yeah. And Jorge, what about you? Uh, is there a message or thought you're hoping the audiences will take away from your either your play or from this series? You know, I, my hope always when people encounter creativity and art uh, is that there is an expansion of possibility, um, that there is a renewed faith in people's own capacity to, uh, to make things and uh, not just publishing initiatives, uh, but works of art uh, and uh, their own sort of sense of themselves, uh, a renewed sense in their ability to function as the fullest kind of citizen. Um, I think that the one thing I'm really struck uh, when I think about uh, Christina's work and Hansel's work and Philip's work is that these aren't particularly um, didactic plays, but all of them um, inspire because they're such beautiful works of art that they instill in us a kind of illumination, a kind of uh, inspiration that expands our own sense of, of possibility. And I also hope that people can really appreciate that we uh, uh, set up a publishing initiative that really bears a really beautiful relationship uh, not just to our own values, but to the values of the work. And that's not often the case. Uh, and it'd be lovely to inspire uh, other initiatives like that. Yeah, I like that. Sheila, how long have you all been working on this project? Well, I think it's, uh, I don't remember when the initial email went out about it, but uh, more than a year and a half, for sure. We, we, Sarah and I were talking about it earlier than that, and Jackie Goldfinger, who is also helping to organize some of the, uh, the launch aspects, she, we all were talking about it before we reached out to writer Sarah. It, the, Sarah did, the, this is uh, Sarah's people, because <laughs> uh, she had relations with all these people. Um, but before then, I think we were trying to figure out what it was. I don't know, Sarah, do you remember when we started talking about it? Um, it, I mean, the pandemic time bleeds together so weirdly, so I don't remember. It was definitely during the pandemic. The, the, uh, here's what I do know, is that there were several starts and stops because of the pandemic. Like, we have had, like, 17 deadlines that all sort of got wiped away. And I, I it, you know, that's another thing that I'm kind of amazed about, is that how, um, how, how we kind of kept wanting to do this as it... There's a lot of them outside uh, evidence that maybe it was going to be challenging and we still stuck together even when it felt really super hard. We still found it a valuable enough project to not let it go. I think that says a lot because it's it's hard to do and it's ex exhausting and also like, you know, trying to make something new out of something you have already is a different kind of art brain, you know? Uh, like you, you have you, the 
looking at your own work with a, a gaze that isn't just the work is a particular kind of um, creativity that is, doesn't, I don't know, for me, it doesn't come natural. I, don't, I, I think I would love to hear from Jorge and Christina how, how you find that exercise of just, you know, re, reconceptualizing your, your own work within a frame. Or, or is it as mo the, the most natural way of, of uh, putting yourself into a more or less a package to be consumed, you know? But yeah, anyway, you asked me how, how long it's been. I have no idea, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Many layers. <laughs> no, I'm all about going on the rabbit hole and following the tangents. Um, real quick, Sarah, I'm going to wind wrap up this part of the interview by asking you, who do you hope have access to the show? Yes. Or to the project, I guess. <laughs> everybody, everybody. Um, <clears throat> I want you know, a 13 year old kid in Oklahoma who mostly knows about New York theater from the library to have access to these plays. I want, you know, New York downtown theater folk to have access to these plays. I want academic libraries to have access to these plays, graduate um, programs and playwriting to have access to these plays, actors to have access to these plays who wanna do a monologue. Um, and I think the other thing I would say about this project is that part of why these four writers were chosen was for their attention to language on the page. We really wanted to work with writers who thought in an outside the box kind of way about how play looks on the page. Um, so we wanted the books to have a kind of feel in the hands that, that the page was important, that it wasn't just a kind of actor edition blueprint. Um, so I would be excited for artists and designers to see these books as well. Um, Hansel uh, commissioned um, her designer, Clint uh, Ramos for um, her cover. And he had done the set design, I think for her play. And it's a beautiful cover. And I just thought, why are more designers designing book covers? Book, book covers for plays are impossible. And here you have these amazing artists who are already in the orbit, but they're not being asked to do such things. So um, me, I want the books. That's the last person. I, I want to have these books. Or hey, how about you? Who do you hope have access? I mean, just to underscore uh, what Sarah said, I'm really inspired by the idea of, of you know, maximum um, <laughs> uh, availability of the book. And uh, that's another thing that's that's been frustrating as, um, you know, bookstores in general become rarer and rarer and that tiny amount of space uh, at the Barnes and Noble that's dedicated to theater becomes smaller and smaller. Uh, it's more important than ever that we try to find the venues and the spaces uh, where plays can reach people. And uh, it seems like the, the internet is, is a beautiful kind of uh, platform that can be exploited uh, to, to help with that. Um, continuing around, Christina, who do you hope have access? Yeah, I just echo uh, what Sarah and Jorge said. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Kansas and, you know, like th th there was definitely a very lively theater scene, but, you know, I also at the 
time, the Playwright Center used to have this young playwright summer camp that I went to in high school for, and it was two weeks in the summer. And we got to see a lot of like downtown theater as well as stuff at the Guthrie. And to this day, I remember being 16 and seeing a production of The Bald Soprano in the back of a bowling alley uh, in Minneapolis, you know, and that stuck with me. And it also inspired me to make like quirky, funny theater and to play with language and to play with the impossible. Um, and so it's my hope that uh, these plays also create um, that kind of spark uh, because I do uh, feel that these three writers, including myself, um, uh, were very inspiring, if I may say so. Uh, and our work is very inspiring and uh, just how we exist and walk through the world is very inspiring. So. Um, I echo, like, I want a huge net of folks <laughs> to be reading these plays. Uh, you know, I, I have a play in, in previews right now and an archeologist was in the audience and came up to me and talked afterwards about some of the archeological elements I have in the play, which I think is like super cool. Uh, so I want archeologists to read these plays, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, um, because I think all of us are such dynamic writers and we're all uh, weaving various threads together to tell these stories and build these worlds. And, uh, and I think we're in conversation with so much of humanity. Um, so uh, I, just, I just say everybody, that's what I would say. And last but not least, Miss Sheila. Uh, I think we covered humanity. <laughs> so, that's, <laughs> so that's who I wanna read the book. But I guess if there's any like unlikely, People who might get their hands on these books. Uh, people who hate, ha think they hate theater. <laughs> people who think have no, they have think they have no interest in theater. People who have gone to theater have spoke to them for whatever reason, and then they see a cool ass cover and they're like, "Wait, that's not the theater that I know. I'm used to like the flat page with a line around it and the t the title and like the lines all lined up in the same exact way, play to play to play to play to play." And, and it looks like it looks like if you didn't read it, it looks like the same play, just a little thicker and with a different color cover. And uh, there's something from page one in every single one of these collections. It's like different. It's saying, ah, this is not what your regular uh, play looks like on a page. And so uh, all those people who are like, I thought I, I thought I didn't like theater and, and I'm wrong. Those are the people that would be cool to, to have on our, on our, uh, on our, on our side. Well, kind of transitioning now, um, I want to kind of dive into you guys yourselves and your experience in the theater. Um, and I think Jorge, I would like to start with you with this next question by asking what shows in the past have inspired you or do you love? And with you being a playwright, I'd like to also open this up to, you know, what playwrights or composers do you love as well? You know, the, whenever somebody asks me that question, it's, it's, so, it's so hard to uh, let go of the, the recent spell that something has cast on you. And so lately, I've just been 
filled with Ayogawa's play Nosebleed that I saw at LCT3 just coming to me again and again and its layers and its sophistication and how beautifully she used form and just the generous way that she puts us on track to mourn so many things, not just the death of her father, but also how melancholia inducing it is to sort of move through the world as a woman of color and the way she ties those things together in the play uh, and stages them in such a delightfully theatrical way so that she herself, for example, is played by, uh, I think it's four different actors Mm -hmm. on stage at the same time. Uh, And, actors of various uh, gender presentations and various uh, ethnicities and races and ages um, and just kind of like affective demeanors. Um, So it's such a smart meditation on the multitude that we all contain and then the way that we sort of, as people of color need identity politics uh, in the current moment to sort of articulate our experience um, and our grievance and our hope. And at the same time, how uh, too simplistic a use of those categories is also stifling. Uh, It's just the most gorgeous work. And so really it it shines so brightly in my head right now that I can't think of anything else. And I'm sure what will happen is in a few months, something else will replace it. And then I'll just be babbling on incoherently about that new piece. Um, Yeah. Um, Christina, how about you? What uh, what shows have, or playwrights or composers do you love, have inspired you? Would you add to the must-have list? Um, yeah, you know, uh, just uh, hearing Jorge's story, it made me remember uh, just like the really profound impact of uh, attending the opening night of Paula Vogel's How I Learned to Drive. Um, it was... Uh, really moving because uh, even though it was a Broadway production, there was something so intimate about the night as a whole. Uh, And it was really an opportunity to continue to celebrate Paula um, as a theater maker and also as a member of the theater community. Um, And, you know, I won't do any spoiler alerts, but there were, because, you know, I've taught that play before several times and I've read it over the years, but there was still a particular scene where I yelled out because uh, I was so shocked by it, um, which I thought was just incredibly um, like cool and powerful that this play um, could uh, could still solicit that present in the moment rawness reaction uh, from me, um, uh, who, who has taught that play several times. And it's just a simple stage direction um, that you read it and you uh, absorb it one way. And then when you see it, it's like, oh no, oh. <laughs> Um, and so it was also just a really lovely, uh, night as a whole, uh, you know, Paula got up on stage and said, you know, a really powerful speech about what the play meant to her and also what the remount meant. Um, and we all went out to dinner afterwards. And, um, and so I think it was just a really lovely reminder that yes, it's, it, 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 like one part of making theater is what happens on that stage, but this, the, the world beyond that stage it's just like so powerful and it creates so many memories. Um, and it, it, it creates a landscape uh, 
that, that so many people can exist on. Um, and that was a lovely reminder that night. Um, so, so that's what I would say is a, a thing that still sticks with me. Um, yeah. I loved that show. That was a beautiful representation of the power of distance on Sage. That, 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 that you don't need that direct intimacy, that direct touching to make that, that communication of uncomfort there. And after I saw Paula Vogel's Indecent, I immediately went out and bought like everything she wrote, including that. And I remember working at a theater, being backstage, reading How I Learned to Drive and being like, what the? And I said, next time it's done somewhere, I have to go see a stage version of this. I just, I love her writing. It's so good. Yeah, she's incredible. Uh, Sheila, how about you? I, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, and this is cheesy, but every single person in this, in this exper in this experiment, the sledgehammer has had a tremendous impact on me because I'm so close to the the words, I'm so close to the language, I'm like reformatting things and taking in a play in a way that I would never ever take it in, just rereading the same thing over and over. And as you shift a line, you read it again, you're, and you recognize the the proximity to another line and how how that opens your mind. It's such an interesting microwave dosing, I guess, microdosing, but micro looking at these plays. And I, I, I encourage people to for, reformat their, their favorite plays as an experiment. I don't know if that's silly to say, but I don't know. I've just felt really refreshed and excited about theater in a way I haven't been for many years because of these four writers. And, um, but I guess uh, there, uh, the two, the two writers that came to mind when you said that question initially, Maria Arian Fornes, because of everything, because of the, the way that, the, because she's a poet, because of the way she, she's so, she was so political, the, her theatricality, her breaking of Aristotelian forms. Uh, just, there, there has never been a time I've ever been watching a Maria Irene Fornes play and not been stunned at how powerful her work is on so many levels. And there, Mabel, Mabel Mines is doing Mud, I believe, this month coming up. And I'm so excited to see it because I could just, I could, you know, she made she made me want to continue to be a writer. And then the writer that, the play, you know how bird watchers have a spark bird, the spark bird, like the, the bird that they see in the wild and like, oh my God, I think I'm a bird watcher. And then they buy binoculars. Uh, my spark bird play was a zoo story by Edward Albee, and I think it's because I was always a, sort of a literature and po poetry person, and then listening to the way um, conflict can happen internally in a person through poetic language just by putting a witness in front of it and watching uh, one character have this entire, um, you know, entire journey with himself out loud, and the thing that makes a poetic, expansive, in in and in, in tragic ultimately journey and making and the reason it's so powerful is because he was he's doing it in front of somebody who's a mute witness and that to me opened up dramatic literature in a way that i don't think tv and film ever had before so. yeah um just a couple more questions for you guys christina what is your favorite part about working in the theater uh, the community, I would probably say. Um, 
you know, like the thing I always say is that my my productions are complete until the audience shows up. Um, like I really try to leave room or, or or I really consider the company to be the actors, the stage managers, the designers and then the audience. Um, so uh, so I would probably say that's my favorite part. Um, uh, also, um, getting that uh, that surprise reaction from someone. Um, also, it, it's so funny because uh, I was watching a preview last night and I realized that in all of my plays, just to uh, track how the audience is listening, within the first 15 minutes, I put in a, a, a joke. And then in the last uh, 10 minutes of the play, I put in a reference to that joke. Um, and if and whoever laughs, I'm like, okay, they're listening. <laughs> and I realized that I do that with almost all of my plays. Um, and uh and 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 like uh, I think it was intentional when I first started, but I think it's just become habit. Um, so uh, so there's also that part that I love about the theater is just like it, a lot of it's like game playing, you know, uh, in Easter eggs and uh, and 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 personal ones, but also ones that you build with the community as you're in the rehearsal room. Uh, so again, it just ties back to community and community building. That's probably my favorite part. Sheila, how about you? What's your favorite part about working in the theater? That too, community for sure. I mean, like I, uh, it's like playing with your friends. It's like making a mixtape for your friends. It's like uh, finding new friends, new best friends through the old best friends you have. I mean, and, and making things for the people you love and, and uh, making things for the people you don't know that you love yet. It, it's, it's, it's just, I, it's hard to describe because I think, because when you say the word theater community, it feels like it's tiny, but that that's opposite of my experience with the idea of community. The idea is that anybody can show up and when they do, it's because they're interested in the conversation. And it's, so it, it doesn't feel like an intellectual exercise. It feels like an emotional one. And it's it feels to me like um, a, a very <laughs> beautiful way to exist in the world <laughs> is to accumulate people who want to be talking about the things you care about and you want to be talking about the things they care about. I think it feels so small, even though it's so big, because we're all so connected and interwoven in that way. You know, you really, if you're in the theater community, you're not half in it. Like you are, you jump in the pool. There's no, I'm just going to put my toe in. No, if you try to put your toe in, someone pushes you in and then you're like, well, now I'm in it, you know? So, and you just get even tighter. It's true. It's true. And then some of my favorite moments, this, these community moments we're talking about, is when I leave a play that I think I hated because I had such an emotional reaction to and you go out afterwards and you're in a bar and screaming about the play. But you're screaming about it for so long that you realize, of course, you don't hate it. If you hated it, you wouldn't be talking at all about it. And it triggered something in you that you didn't know was there to be triggered. And, and you're not alone. And it's 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 you have the community experience of quietly breathing together in a room. That's one part. But the other part is screaming about something you don't even know about yourself that the play brought up and then i think that's that's even cooler <laughs> or hey how about you what's your favorite part about working in the theater you know i love these answers a, a, a complimentary answer is i love the surprise that by the time i finish a, a first draft i've done so much work on the play and have so much uh, writing on the play that i've generated 
in some ways, the script is only like the tip of the iceberg. You know, I have the characters' groceries list, and I have their, uh, you know, high school transcripts. Like, I have a lot of information about the characters. And then I show up and start working with actors, and an actor makes a choice that I could never in a hundred years predicted, and it's exactly right. And it's simultaneously humbling and world-making and bonding, and it's just extraordinary. And I don't know how that happens, uh, but it's, it's wonderful. by asking my favorite question and Jorge I'm actually going to start with you on this one which is what is your favorite theater memory oh wow uh favorite <laughs> theater memory gosh I don't there's just been so many uh I remember being in a small theater in Miami watching this two-hander uh about the exile experience uh, and these two extraordinary actors presenting this play in Spanish. And part of what happens uh, in Spanish language theater in the United States is that these incredible actors from Latin America end up in the United States and can't get enough work. And so this theater must have sat like 50 people. And it was just this stunning production where they played characters uh, when they were teenagers, when they were middle-aged, when they were elderly, and they just pulled it off so seamlessly and so powerfully and with such abandon. And the entire theater uh, was transported by this bare bones uh, production. That sounds so cool. I would have loved to see that. Uh, Christina, how about you? What is your favorite theater memory? Yeah, uh, I would probably say uh, George C. Wolf's, um, uh, is it Museum Play? Is that the title of that play? I can't remember. Um, but uh, it, it was a stage reading. Oh, oh no, The Colored Museum. Yeah. Um, so it was a stage reading of that at the public. Uh, I think this was like in 2004 and half the cast was the original company. And, and I want to say Billy Porter was in it as well. Um, but the reason that it sticks out in my memory is because it was a it was a packed house and over half of that audience, including myself, like new quotable lines from the script. So wow. it almost had this Rocky Horror picture energy to it um, where, you know, like uh, like like some of the more comedic monologues, like people were saying the lines with the actor. Um, and for the more dramatic ones, um, you know, you could hear a pin drop. And then when when that actor finished the dramatic monologue, it was just this release and this cheering and this applause. Um, and it was just a really lovely reminder, again, that, you know, like the fourth wall can have cracks in it. And even though that performer or that play is saying that there's a fourth wall here, there's an energy that still seeps through. Um, that still sticks with me to this day, uh, just the celebratory nature of that entire experience, but also um, just honoring 
uh, the power and impact of that play and also, uh, you know, members of that original company who had passed away. So there were also people there who were honoring um, like that impact. Uh, so that is, is the most immediate um, uh, thing that comes to mind when you ask that question. Oh, that's awesome. Sheila, wrapping things up, what is your favorite theater memory? Well, mine isn't a memory of watching a play. It's a, ma it's a memory of falling in love. I, uh, in high school, we had this quirky uh, uh, art teacher who was also our theater director, and he was interested in really obscure Tennessee William plays. And that year we did two plays that I don't know if anybody's heard of called This Property is Condemned and The Gnadigus Fraulein. And they were, they're truly deeply weird Tennessee Williams plays. They're not conventionally structured. I loved, I loved doing them. I loved performing in them. But uh, the, the day after they closed, I, I broke into the theater and there, no, there was like just one light on in the back up by the booth. And I, I went and I sat on the stage and I stared at the audience because and I didn't exactly know why I was doing it because I was a pretty good kid. I didn't like to break rules, but I I was risking maybe going to the principal. I have no idea what I was risking by sitting on a stage, but I sat there for hours just staring at the audience because I couldn't let go of the feeling of what had happened over the past three nights. I couldn't let it go, and I I, re I realized this is the longest love affair of my entire life. Started at sixteen and 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 is still going strong, and uh. I, I don't, I, I never want to leave. <laughs> I love that. Are there any other productions or projects that any of you have coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug? Buy these books. I think that's the, I think that's the project. Uh, get yourself to uh, the Sledgehammer books, please. <laughs> <laughs> Building on that, um, if our listeners want to get more information about the Sledgehammer series uh, or about any of you, how can they get that? How can they get in contact with you? Uh, they can go to the tripwireharlot.com website, which is still a beast in progress. Uh, so there will there's information there now. There will be more information. The books will officially be available for purchase after the launch. Um, and we're doing staggered launches as the books become ready. Um, but I believe we will have Christina's available for purchase definitely at the launch and potentially Hansel's and maybe Phillips. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, all they got to do is keep checking in. If they want to sign up for um, announcements, we'll be announcing when those books drop. And they can also do that on the website, tripwireharlot.com, and sign up for the mailing list. And we, we don't blast people. We just let them know when the books are ready and when we have an event. So uh, no worries about like, you know, a blog experience. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's-, that's, that's Harlot, H-A-R-L-O-T? Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, my guests today have been um, members involved with the Sledgehammer series. Uh, Jorge Ignacio Cortinas, who is a playwright of re recent alien abductions, Christina Anderson, who is a playwright of three plays, and then Sarah Rule and Sheila Callahan, who are two of the co-founders of the Sledgehammer series. This is kicking off Sunday, September 25th from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Drama Bookshop here in New York City. That's 266 West 39th Street. And you can get more information about the series, about the books available, when they're going to be available, all that jazz at tripwireharlot.com. 
We're going to have all of this information available in the description for the episode, as well as on our social media. And listen, this is not only just a great opportunity to support fantastic playwrights, but this is an opportunity to really read some fantastic work. Um, I cannot recommend this enough. Uh, those of our patrons out there that hear this, we will probably be featuring some of this work in our scripted series, because uh, what a great opportunity just to recognize great talent. So Jorge, Christina, Sheila, and then Sarah, who had to leave early. But thank you all so much for joining us today. It's been such a joy and an honor speaking with all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. And thanks to the listeners for supporting you and us. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town met in a foreign land. One sang the praises of Cape. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jesse Spillane, Yellow Cop, Uncle Bibby, and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.